Okay. Uh, I just want to tell y'all a little bit about this week for me. It's actually been a uh, a really hard lesson for me to put together. Uh, normally, when I do a lesson, I kind of just like have a piece about the direction it's going to go, and it just kind of all falls together. And that was just like not the case this week. It was um, just kind of a struggle the whole time, um, up until about last night. Uh, very late. I was uh, I didn't get much sleep last night, but. Um, as part of that, God used that to show me and kind of convict me of how much like Saul I can be, how I can want things to look good for all of you and for my talk to kind of work out well, uh, more than I can really want to know the heart of God when I come to a passage, that um, I can want you to think well of me more than I can want God's heart, and uh, God was gracious and kind last night um, to to give me that greater desire to to push into really wanting to know God's heart. So as we come to these amazing and beautiful passages, and also some really hard passages, that is my prayer for us that we would want to know. God's heart, that that would be our desire. Do I want to know God's heart about judgment? Or do I want to know the world's opinion about judgment? Do I want to know God's heart about every detail of my life? Or do I want to just assume I'm fulfilling the commandments? Do I want to just keep right on going with what I'm doing and assuming that it's, that it's right? Do I want to know the heart of God? Do I want my life to be a 100% all in, not with my heart, not with my desires, not with what I want, but with the heart of God? I need Jesus. I need forgiveness. I need a savior to do that because I don't want that. So that's where I found myself this week (laughs) is realizing how much I don't want God's heart. So let's pray. Everything that you reveal to us in your word can help us to know you more. Give us a desire to know you more. Will you work in us to help us to value what you value, to love what you love, to want what you want, and to see as you see? Work in us to be women after your own heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I want to take a few steps back and look at kind of a few of the characters in the story because I think as we come to these chapters, it can be really hard to understand what's going on if we don't know who Saul is. So who is Saul? Saul is the people's king. He is what the people think they want. He represents human might and strength. 
He is the best that it can get on our own. He is what, if we want to do it on our own, what we can look to. We are never to see Saul as regenerate. We are never to see Saul as a believer. Saul deals with God at a distance through Samuel, or he deals with God kind of on his own terms, kind of bringing sacrifices in his own way, the way he wants to. Or we see also in this passage that he wants to appear before the people to be bowing down before God. He's not actually that concerned about bowing down before God, but he wants to appear to be godly. He is sadly, and as we'll see God grieve later, he is not a man of faith. He really only seems bothered by his sin in that he doesn't like the consequences. Saul fears man, not God. He wants man's approval, not God's. He shows us how our story will play, how it will end if we try to come to God in our own might, in our own strength, in our own terms. He wants the blessing of God to be the king. He wants to be the king. And he is willing to do whatever Samuel tells him that God requires so that he can be king, but only kind of up until the point that it's hard or up until the point that he disagrees or up until the point that his, his logic tells him another way would work just as well. And especially his big one is he is willing to do what God requires up until the point that it's not popular with the people. He is the king after the people's heart. He wants their approval. He is not after God's heart. Kay Gabrish, kind of as we think about Saul, said, um, there is a difference between once saved, always saved, and once professed, always saved. And we see this with people where we just are heartbroken because they talked the right talk and they did the church thing, but then they'll say, I never believed. They professed, but they were never saved. And it is, it's heartbreaking. Um, Doing church, being king, does not save someone. Only Jesus saves through faith. So our next character that we kind of want to look at real quick before we jump into the chapter is Samuel. And Samuel, I I really like Samuel, um, and I kind of don't, but I really like him. Uh, Samuel is strong-willed and passionate and wants God's will done. Samuel is one of those characters in the Bible that uh, shows us that great followers of God do not all have to have the same temperament. You don't have to be quiet and shy and soft or kind of go with the flow to be greatly used of God. Uh, Different friends and I at different times um, have talked about kind of our children and some of them who are very strong-willed and passionate, and that we just pray that God would use that, that they would use that passion, that they would use that strong will for God. That is Samuel. This is Samuel. He uses his temperament. He uses his strong will. He uses his passion for God. 
And we even like have this little sarcasm that he does, which I think is so funny. Um, you know, what then is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? You know, so he's like sarcastic. He's like, you know, got this sword. He's passionate. He's strong-willed. Um, and I think this is really encouraging for me because I see so often that we have too small of a box of what a good Christian looks like. We, uh, we don't have to beat ourselves up to kind of try to be this little uh, circle Christian peg. That's not what being a Christian is about. It's about using our temperaments, being who, using who God designed us to be for God, with the focus being on the heart, on having a heart that is after God's own heart, not about a temperament. So uh, if you have children and, uh, or you have friends or you have husbands who have temperaments that sometimes you're like, your temperament isn't exactly what I would like right now. It's not about their temperament. It's about their heart. Um, so I just encourage you to look to Samuel for that. Um, okay, let's jump into chapter 15. And it is a really hard one. And um, I want us to have the desire to know God's heart that that is what we want, that we just want to know God's heart. And uh, I want to say real quick about this passage, that if you have an atheist, an atheist or an agnostic friend who is kind of antagonistic against God, or you see, see things like that, this is often a passage that they will come to. And if you have children or friends uh, who are going to be leaving and kind of going into an environment where they're not kind of with you, I would encourage you to kind of work through these passages with them. I have a dear friend who um, went to college and um, had not kind of heard any of these things about God and, and ended up walking away from the faith. And he still talks about how angry he is at his parents that they didn't prepare him and how he just felt stupid and very taken aback that he had no idea that the Bible said this is what God was like. So I just encourage you that you want to be prepared yourself and that you want to prepare other people that this is who the God of the Bible is. And also, even more than just being prepared to talk with other people who might attack God, we want to know God. We want our kids to really know God. We want to have a heart to know God as he would show himself. So we have in this text the ordering of the killing of men, but also of the women and the children and the infants. And that is hard. Um, it says, do not spare them. And this is meant to make us step back and take note. This is our great God bringing forth judgment. We see uh, this here with the Amalekites. They are ordered to kill everyone. We see this with the flood. We see this with Sodom and Gomorrah. And then also we see it with some of the other tribes of Canaan when the people were told to come into the land. And I think one of the verses related to that is very helpful. It's Genesis 15, 16, and it says that the Israelites were not yet to enter the land because... The iniquity or the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. So one critical thing to know 
is that judgment like this happens only when sin is complete. The heart of God is to give as much time as possible for repentance. He does not judge a moment too soon. His timing is perfectly holy and just. And there is a whole history that the Israelites have with the Amalekites. They are descendants of Esau. So he's who sold his birthright to Jacob for the stew. It was said of Esau that he despised his birthright. We know Esau married two Hittite women who Isaac and Rebekah said made their life bitter. And Rebekah said made her loathe her life. Her daughter-in-laws made her loathe her life. So we can assume from this that their influence on Esau and the family and their descendants was great. And when you study kind of the religion of the Hittites and the Canaanites, it is appalling. I mean, anything you can think of, they were doing it. Um, When sin is complete, God judges. And we see the Amalekites attack Israel over and over. John Allister points out that they were, in fact, the very first people to attack Israel. They are just being formed as a nation. They are being called out of Egypt. They are weak. They are weary. God is delivering them. And the Amalekites, who hate them, take advantage. And they attack them. And that's referenced here in this passage. That the Lord remembers. That the Lord noted what they did to Israel in opposing them on the way out of Egypt. And God is the one who keeps bringing this up. God remembers. In Deuteronomy 25, 17 is another place where, where God talks about this. He says, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt? How he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary and he did not fear God. God remembers. And I think it's really important that as descendants of Esau, they would know the promise and the blessing that they felt should have been Esau's, but went to Jacob. And what did that include? I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. They should know this. I will curse those who curse you. So we see the Amalekites, a purposeful attack of God's people with a disdain for God. And you can almost see it as a challenge that they don't believe God will curse them. And I think I need to remind myself of that sometimes, that my God is a God who blesses me, but that his stance towards some is curse. There is a time when sin is complete and judgment happens. The heart of God includes judgment for sin. One commentator points out that we actually see the Amalekites later in Samuel 
so that they were not all wiped out. And he suggests that when Saul kind of pronounces, we're going to be destroying everyone and Kenites, you can leave, uh, that any of the Amalekites could have left as well. So that even kind of there's room to kind of see in this that it's the ones who stayed and trusted in the strength of their army who would have been the ones who were destroyed. So there can be nuances as well as we look at this of the reality of what really happened here because they were not all, they were not all destroyed. We see later them popping back up. But the, the message, the thrust of the passage is judgment. And these moments are meant to be for us a prelude of coming judgment. When we look to Revelation and we look to the future, we see that judgment and death and annihilation are coming. Kay Gabrish pointed to Revelation 6 uh, as part of kind of thinking about this passage And um, I think it would do me really well to spend a lot more time in Revelation um, and to really think through that, um, remembering and reading and praying and thinking about judgment and as our God, as a bringer of judgment. In Revelation 6, it talks about that any peace, any moment of peace on earth is the common grace of God. So God knows the heart of man, young and old. He knows that if he is not actively restraining sin, what we will do. And he is within his power to judge that. It is within his right to judge that. Revelation 6 also shows us, um, from the heavenly perspective, the martyred saints are calling out for justice and judgment. They say they are, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So where we can have a lot of trouble understanding these passages, from the heavenly perspective, when we are in heaven, we will yearn for justice. We will call to God. For justice. You know those movies where it's like, if I could talk to my younger self, um, I don't know why I found my, like, if my heavenly self could talk to my earthly self, um, I think there would be like, so how many things would you say, I'm sure. But I thought one of the things that I, I think I would say to myself is just to see, like, you know, if like you could talk to your high school self and you'd be like, it's, this isn't, it's not reality. Um, but, like, <laughs> if you could talk to your earthly self, you would just say, like, do you not know how affected and influenced by our culture you have been? See that our culture of tolerance is pressing into you. It is influencing you. It is making you think differently. You are thinking like your culture. Uh, so I went, I got my little concordance out, and I got like, you know, I, I checked like three different ones because I was like, I really want to make sure this is right. Um, and the, the, the word tolerance is, is not in the Bible in the way we use it. So um, the, it's only used one, in, in one way, 
like just a few times, and it's used in the exact opposite way that our culture uses it because it's talking about judgment. And it says, but I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. God has lots of beautiful and amazing characteristics and not one of them is tolerant. God is not tolerant. Patient? Yes. Long-suffering? Yes. Loving? Yes. Forgiving? Yes. Tolerant? No. Judge? Yes. We do not speak truth. We do not believe truth. And we do not do ourselves or anyone any favors by making less of God. To make him palatable for people. God doesn't want to be palatable. He's God. He wants to be God in our hearts and in our mouths. So we have to move on. But <laughs> uh, there is a lot more resources on this kind of the Amalekite thing. So if you're interested in that, um, feel free to let's talk more too. Because there's, there's a lot of great study done on this. Okay, so up next, let's move on to our next easy issue of um, God regretting. <laughs> so uh, let's talk real quick about God regretting making Saul king. What does it mean that God regrets something? Or another translation is that God repents of making Saul king. So the other place in scripture that this same word is used of God is right before the flood. That God regrets that he made man. He repents that he made man. So the first thing that we want to say is that this text itself puts some parameters on what that can mean. And I love that because then it's always very helpful for us. So what this verse tells us in, in, chap, in verse 29 is that it is not regret in the same way that you and I have regret. So whatever it is, it's its own category of regret. It's not regret like man regrets. So John Piper says what he thinks this means is that his, God's repentance is not owing to lack of foresight nor is it to folly. God is not saying, I made the wrong choice. He's not saying, I didn't know how it was going to turn out. And now I'm changing paths. He is more expressing a real sadness or regret in the sense of grief that this is the way that it was necessary for it to go. So John Piper gives this analogy of spanking your child that you can, you can feel great regret. You can feel great sadness that it's necessary that you need to spank your child while also saying, without a doubt, this is the right course of action. And Piper's point is that if you can, in this small instance, have this kind of complex emotion of this is right, this is good, and yet also have some regret that it's needed, the God who created emotion how much more can we not kind of see in him that he would have complex emotion that we kind of can't begin to understand, that he is complex. Um, but he has real emotion. 
he really feels. Ezekiel 6, 9 says, I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me. God is broken over our sin. Now, was Saul's action that big of a deal? The reason it was a big deal is that it reveals the reality of his heart. Saul cared about the people's approval, and he was after their heart. Um, And Saul shows us how good we are at justifying our sin. I am really good at this. And verse 19 says, they pounced on the spoil. They wanted it for themselves and not for God. Uh, And remember that whenever they brought sacrifices, they got to have a big feast. It was a meal. It was a, it was, they got to eat most of the meat. And one commentator also pointed out that it meant that they would not have to sacrifice their own animals. So uh, what I thought of was like, okay, so imagine there's a 14-year-old. And uh, this is what he says. I drove all of my friends in the car, but it was to get you flowers. <laughs> really? This is a turning. This is, a, this is making something different than what it was. They pounced on the spoil for themselves. Um, Saul has shown once again that he will not follow God's commands. And God is saddened by this. He's, Samuel is grieved by this. We see that God is moved as we reject him and as people reject him. He expects it. He knows it will happen, but it still saddens him. What is the only solution to Israel's problem and our problem? God must act. So we see in chapter 16, verse 1, that God acts and provides for himself. What we have, what we need, is God to provide. We're Saul. We need God to provide. And then we have this wonderful building in this text until David arrives on the scene. And I'm, I'm really excited, excited we finally made it to David. Yay. Um, he's the unlikely youngest son that he wasn't even initially invited to the feast. And um, he is the unlikely king. What are his credentials? He is a man after God's own heart. He wants to know God's heart. I think it's important, though, as we look at the Psalms, um, that David gives the credit for the good in his heart to God. Psalm 73, 6 says, My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Psalm 10, 17 says, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. And as we look at David, uh, we're going to see a lot of great things. We are going to see the working out of a man after God's own heart. And we are going to be very encouraged. But we're also probably just a little, you probably, you know this, but you, as we work through it, you're going to be reminded that you're going to be a little bit bothered by his sin. And Kay Gabrish said, moral perfectionists will not be comfortable with David. And I just want to tell you that I am a moral perfectionist. Uh, For other people, of course. (laughs) Um, 
I'm very glad that my life is not spelled out in the passages of Scripture for you all to see all of my moral failings, the ways I don't trust, the way I don't believe, these huge moments in my life where I totally fail. But I don't like that David does it. Um, I don't like that you do it. You know, I don't like that I do it either. But God in his wisdom wants to show us the reality. The Bible shows reality. And so we can with thankfulness say thank you for including his failures. Even when they're messy. Even when they really hurt people. Thank you for showing us this. So that when we really mess up and when we really hurt people or when we are really hurt and others really mess up, we can see that God's heart still loves, that God's heart still pushes in. God would never have us forget that all men failed, that all men will fail, that we will fail, that only in Christ and through Christ is their favor with God. Okay, so the last thing, the last little thing that I want to talk about from this text, um, it's been a, it's, there's, there's a lot in it, but um, David was anointed as king. But then there is this really long process until he is actually crowned king. And I feel like this is our lives a lot of times. Um, we're waiting for heaven still. God set something in motion that would come to fruition and that David was to live his life in light of, but that did not happen right away. We are going to see the very hard path that David must walk. And we can take heart as we walk the hard paths that God has for us. It is not about our lives looking good for everyone else to see. It is about the process. It is about the process of learning the heart of God. It is a process about loving the heart of God. So the circumstances are all about learning and loving the heart of God. Do I want my life to reflect the heart of God? Am I willing for my life to be hard and include rejection and sacrifice and great battle against sin and loyal love and forgiveness and peace and hope and trust and a hatred for sin, a love for sinners? Submission, humility, goodness, rest. Our God's heart is beautiful beyond compare. And I, this week, can hardly believe how much I neglect it. How much I neglect wanting to know it. I regret 
I repent in all of the humanly ways that I don't want to know the heart of God enough. This is foolish of me. This is folly of me. I genuinely need forgiveness for this. I genuinely need Jesus. I deserve judgment. But the heart of God to his people, to me, shines brightly with love and acceptance and joy and hope. The heart of God for me is peace. I can go there for peace. Um, know the heart of God want to know the heart of God he loves you may his heart be your heart may the heart of God guide us every moment How can there be something so beautiful and so amazing and so lovely and I just ignore it? Thank you that you show me that. Thank you that you show us that. It is your mercy. It is your kindness. It is your heart that you want me to see your heart. We are your children, and you want us to know you. Work that in us, because we cannot work it in ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.